You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Church. We are a church for the city, making much about the name of Jesus. And we strive to do that by living out four particular values, by striving towards practicing love with everyone always, uh, giving more than makes sense, chasing after the likeness of Christ in every corner of our lives, and anchoring ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's word. That's who we are. That's what we want to be. I had an interesting interaction with somebody this week who said, hey, I was talking to somebody and they said they used to come to Life Church, but they stopped coming because every week they just talk about money. And I just thought, where did that come from? And then I realized every week we say, give more than what makes sense. <laughs> and maybe people don't think of that the way that I think of it, as the generosity of believers. And so I just want you to understand how we do that here as a church for the city. We have decided to remove all the rental fees for our building. We allow our community to use our building for free anytime they want, as long as they're not charging money. And so one thing that's happening in our church, we have a homeschool theater group. We actually have two homeschool theater groups who are using this auditorium for free. And so they're launching productions that are coming up on April 9th and 10th that you guys are welcome to come to. We have lots of people in our church involved with them. And so you can come on either April 9th to see the children's play or the 10th and see the play marked by grace for greatness by our high school group. So that's what it means for us to give more than makes sense. Uh, just a couple things that I want to bring to you. Uh, we are launching a study called Fervent. It's based upon a book called Fervent, and it is a tool that can be helpful for you to engage renewed engagement into a life of prayer. And so Kathy Householder and Zach Bedwell are kind of heading it up. If you're interested, there's more details at the information desk, and you can sign up after there. Let me run through the, the litany of things that are happening over Passion Week here. First of all, on Friday, we have our Community Good Friday service with a bunch of churches in our county at Hope Missionary Church at 7 p.m. There's child care for people, kids three and under. Uh, we'd love for you to join us there as we uh, come together and celebrate collectively. And then after that, we have a 24-hour prayer event with our Stations of the Cross that we do every year. Uh, we'd love your help in signing up to make this a 24 hours of prayer, and so you can look in the back, and there are slots that you can sign up for to come in and pray here in the building and observe the artwork and the meaning behind what is happening in this Passion Week. And then lastly, we celebrate Easter together, two services next Sunday, 9 o'clock and 10.30. Know that you can come to either one of those. Today's kind of a big deal. We have our feast. We haven't had this, feels like, in a while. And so uh, when you get done here, just know there's a little bit of difference in what we're doing. When you leave here, you can go straight to get your kids and then go into the gymnasium. And you can sit wherever you want to. Try to um, not just take up one, or one table with you three. But let's get together, and then we're going to bring the food to you. So you don't even have to do anything. You just sit there and enjoy pulled pork, homemade baked beans, and coleslaw. It's amazing. They're all, it's all homemade. It's delicious. So, Well, we are looking at the triumphal entry today. I'm excited to sort of just go line for line here and talk about this important event that we don't often talk about in the church. We begin today a series, just three parts, just today, the triumphal entry, Easter next week, and then we're going to talk about the ascension, this 
kind of misunderstood idea about Jesus rising into the clouds. And so we're going to do the triumphal entry. We're going to read it in Luke 19, starting in verse 28. You're welcome to be there in your Bibles or follow us on the screen. Luke writes, And when he said these things, he went, ahead, went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we confess that uh, we are insufficient for living. Um, Lord, that we believe that you are sufficient for our living. So, Lord, will you use this word? Will you make it satisfying to our hearts? Will you let us heed its wisdom and follow its call? And we ask this through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so Jesus is here, and he arrives in Bethphage some six days before the Passover. Uh, the day the Israelites would remember their rescue from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt um, when they were held in slavery by the king, or the, the Pharaoh in Egypt some 14 year, 1,400 years prior. And so the Mount of Olivet, which also is the Mount of Olives, is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so here Jesus is on the side of this hill, and he's overlooking the city, and he's overlooking the temple. The Passover has massive significance in the Jewish culture. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's actually a command that tells all the Israelite males to go to Jerusalem on the Passover. And they often bring their families. And so in this moment, when Jesus arrives, historians and scholars believe that there is somewhere near 200,000 up to a million people gathered in the city. 
The normative population of Jerusalem is around 80,000 at this point. It has swollen with pilgrims who've come to observe the Passover. And as he's about to enter the city, he gives these instructions to his disciples to go get a colt for him to ride into the city. The word colt here is referring to a young male, not necessarily a species of animals. When you hear colt, you often think of horses. But that's not the case here. The accounts in the Gospels say that this is a colt of a donkey, a foal of a donkey. And there are a few things for us to note about this young donkey here. This is an Old Testament prophecy that finds its fulfillment in Jesus riding in the city on a colt. One of over 300 prophecies that he fulfilled in his time on earth. The prophet Zechariah writes some 600 years before Jesus enters in the city about how the Messiah would come in. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Other Bible translation says lowly and riding a donkey. You know, Jesus could have easily walked the two miles into the city, but he's deliberate here for a reason that in the donkey, we get a greater knowledge of who he is. And yet what is even more wonderful than the fulfilled prophecy is that in the donkey and its procurement, in its gathering, we see the power and divinity of Christ, his desire for partnership with his people, and the very heart of God for humanity is revealed. Jesus specifically <laughs> asked for a colt that has never been ridden. And what he is asking for is a colt that is unbroken, unridden, untrained. Let your mind wander to some Western movie or cowboy movie that you've watched recently and try to think about what it means to break a colt. It is to take the wild out of the animal, to domesticate them for your purposes. And that can take a very long time. The normative process of breaking a colt is four to six weeks. And here Jesus is asking his disciples to go get an unbroken colt with the desire to ride it on the very same day. Consider that. The disciples who are charged with getting this colt are instructed that if they are asked on why they are taking the colt, to simply say, the Lord has need of it. You know, there's a lingering discussion in secular culture that disputes that Jesus never saw himself to be God, nor said that he was God, and there is no foundational basis for it. It's intellectually dishonest. It's a crafty attempt to confuse people because Christ left no doubt who he said he was. He left no doubt that he was the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior of mankind, and he made that known. Here specifically, he calls himself Lord. When responding to the question, tell him, the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, verbatim, just as Jesus predicted to his disciples, it happened. And no other questions were necessary. To the owner of the colt, the words, the Lord has need of it, 
were all sufficient and satisfying. And so in this moment outside of the holy city of Jerusalem, this journey begins that will take Jesus to the cross. He will be beaten and killed in a week's time. Yet we are reminded here in the submission of this unbroken donkey that Jesus is riding, in the foretelling of events and the sufficiency of his words, the Lord has need of it. That whatever is in front of him will happen by his authority and according to his will. In 62 AD, there's a letter written to the church in Colossae. The Apostle Paul writes brilliantly and thoroughly on who Christ is. And on the side of the mountaintops, these people in attendance experienced it. Paul writes in Colossians verse chapter 1 about Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even though in his incarnation, incarnation, for the cause of peace with humanity, God took on the needy flesh of humanity. And though he took on the sinful, needy flesh of humanity, he never gave up his sovereignty. He has and had the power to ask what he wanted, to command what he needed, when he needed it, where he needed it, by his authority and by his word alone. The journey that is beginning here will be done by his authority. Nothing will happen outside of his will. And in knowing that, we know that Jesus could have conjured up a donkey on the horizon that could have just ran to meet him, but he doesn't. He involves his people, his disciples, in a task Certainly God doesn't need them to acquire the donkey, but he chooses them. How humbling is it to realize that despite our limitation, God still desires to use us. God wants to partner with us to carry out his plans, whether that be faithfully walking out his commands like the disciples or like the owner of this donkey, sacrificing what we have in service of him. The donkey and its acquirement aren't unimportant details here in the story. They have massive, wonderful implications about our Lord, and some of which we will reveal later. And so on the back of this donkey, Jesus makes his way down the mountainside. And then his followers and disciples begin to throw their cloaks under this donkey, under Jesus. And this is symbolic of one who is placing themselves under one's authority. The cloak is symbolic to themselves. And by putting their cloak under the feet of this donkey that Jesus is riding, they're saying, I'm under your feet, Lord. I'm under your authority. And we get a great sense from the other accounts of the triumphal entries in Mark and Matthew and John that the whole city, as he is coming into it, begins to stir. This city, swollen by pilgrims, is a buzz. Sort of the buzz that might happen around here if, if Zach Bedwell showed up without bibs on, right? <laughs> and just, or, or Bob Mons just came with flowing locks of hair, right? People are just talking about it. Something monumental is happening. There are many in the city who saw Lazarus be raised from the dead. 
Lazarus himself would be there. And they are sharing what they saw. And the disciples began to rejoice and praise God, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There is a noise that is beginning. And you can sort of read it and anticipate it as you're reading through this story. And the Pharisees, who are the religious over the rulers of the day, they hate it. They hate it. Because what they are saying is blasphemy. It's sacrilegious. They are ascribing and describing things about Jesus that should be only said about God. And they hate it. And they demand him to squelch it. But Jesus knew on this day, nothing would stop creation's adoration. That even if he quieted them, that the rocks would cry out in worship. We consider that Jesus spent most of his ministry silencing people discouraging people from coming out publicly, declaring him to be the Messiah. But not on this day. He allowed the silent joy and the passions of his followers to reverberate around the walls of the city. All of his mighty works are being declared, and a great cry could be heard throughout the cities, and the Pharisees knew that they had to do something. They could no longer ignore it, Because to them, it seemed as if the whole world had gone after him. It's interesting to remember the events of Jesus' birth here. That as the Magi, the travelers from the east, go into Jerusalem and seek what they call the king of the Jews, Scripture tells us that Jerusalem had a different reaction. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, it says that when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. But on this day, they are not troubled. They are elated, and Jesus refuses to stifle his celebration. Yet, he knows this, that most in that crowd aren't really celebrating him. They're celebrating what they hope that he will do for them. We have to remember that in this time and place, the nation of Israel is a puppet state. It's oppressed. It's conquered and subject to Roman rule. The Israelites had no king of their own. They desired one. In fact, the highest leader in their midst, the high priest, was, was only allowed to rule with Roman approval. Everything had to be done with the consent of Rome. And so these people in Jerusalem in that day saw themselves in the same way the Israelites in Egypt saw themselves. Oppressed, in slavery, wanting a king to come. They awaited a new Moses. They desired a king like King David to come and overthrow the government. And in fact, the scripture says they begin to, to gather and they shout, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna is this word that means save or save now. And what they are saying is save us now, son of David. They're hearkening back to this image of King David because that's what they want. Deliver us, King David. They want a political king. They want Jesus to be a political leader. And the gospel of John reveals that there are palm leaves that come out. These palm fronds, these branches come out and they begin to be waved amongst the crowd. In John 12, verse 13, it says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, palm leaves are symbolic with victory, but they're also symbolic with Jewish nationalism. Palm fronds were often printed on Jewish currency. You can see an example here. This is a national symbol. You will find palm fronds on the entrance of Judean buildings. This is the equivalent of them taking the American flag out and greeting Jesus as he comes into the city. It's interesting how the early church worked this. They would use the palm leaves and celebrate Jesus during the Passover, during the arrival, but they would keep them for the whole year, and then they would burn them for Ash Wednesday. It's it's amazing. Christ's triumphal entry becomes this political parade. He is being esteemed as a national hero. But Jesus knows that this crowd in this moment who are celebrating him will be the same people that in just a matter of days will be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And what is ironic in all of this hero narrative, in all of this nationalism, in this gleeful celebration of what they believe to be their deliverance from Roman rule by Christ, what is ironic here is the donkey. The donkey is the irony here amongst the expectations of those in the city. If you were to survey the Old Testament, you would find that the image of the donkey is connected to royalty, and it's connected to peaceful pursuits. In fact, in the Old Testament book, 1 Kings, King David, at the end of his life, at the anointing of his son Solomon to be king, instructs him to ride a mule, a donkey, into the city to symbolically show them the peaceful transition of power. Solomon rides into the city as a king who comes in peace on a donkey. The horse is the symbol that leaders in that day would choose if they were going to war. Horses are symbolic with war, with victory, with battle. Yet here we see Jesus on a donkey, humble and lowly. And that alone profoundly speaks to the intentions of Christ. A king that is ushering into a new kingdom who will not use the weapons of war. And as he draws near to the city, the word records that he weeps, that Jesus grieves in the midst of this celebration all around him. Our Savior is wailing Not tears of exaltation or tears of happiness, but of intense sadness. This should be a moment that you would think Christ would relish. Certainly, if we were in this day, we would relish, soak up this celebration, but yet in the midst, Christ is grieving. Why? Well, some might see this and think, well, in just a matter of days, Jesus is going to be brutally murdered. And so... He is overcome with concerns about himself, about what's going to happen to him. Yet we remember the donkey. And we remember that all of this is being done by his will and his authority. Christ's tears aren't about himself. Yet it's in his weeping that we see the very heart of God. Because the 
cause of Christ weeping is the impending destruction that's going to come to Jerusalem. And he takes no joy in the judgment that is about to befall him. God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. Christ weeps because he knows the same ambitions that they have for him to be a political king will be the cause of their destruction for generations. And he laments because it didn't have to be this way. This could have been a glorious day if they only knew that the weapons for God's redemption and peace did not come through a sword or war, but through a lowly man riding a donkey who was ready to give up his life. But the word says it was hidden from their eyes. They were blinded by their own lust for power. Jerusalem literally means city of peace. But there was no peace to be found. Jesus laments, had they known on this day the things that make for peace. Christ knows that not less than 40 years into the future, one would come again on the Passover feast, this time riding a horse, and not for the cause of peace. General Titus of the Roman army would walk into the city, ride into the city on the horse, and crush the city, massacre its people, and destroy the temple. All the product of Israelites, the Israelites' lust for power, and not for peace through Christ. And I can't help but think that this serves as a great reminder of, for us of the innate dangers that come with mixing nationalism and politics with Christ and making Jesus into a political savior to believe that Jesus would be for our causes, for our beliefs, and for our opinions, and even the temptation to believe that Jesus would strike down those who oppose us or work against us. There is great relevancy in this for us today. And so Christ, in this procession into the city, ends at the temple. Luke has an abbreviated story about the triumphal entry that reads almost as if Jesus goes into the temple on that day and cleanses it, clears it from all the, 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 the buying and selling, all of this heathen activity that's happening in the temple. Jesus comes into the temple on Sunday, but he doesn't clear it. That's on Monday. Mark tells us what happens at the temple when Jesus arrives in it. In Mark 11, chapter 11, verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And we had looked around at everything as it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. Like Jesus enters the temple, makes an inspection, looks around and examines everything and takes an account, and then he leaves without ceremony, without exaltation. And so I think there's a couple things that come to my mind when I read this. You know, for all the buzz that is going around the city in his coming, one would assume that the crowd believed Rome would be the target of their newly celebrated king's attention. But Jesus doesn't go to a Roman fortress or an outpost he arrives at the heart of religious life in that day in the temple. It would be like Jesus arriving today with all of our anticipations about where he would go and he comes to the church and he makes an account of what's going on. He studies what he sees and certainly 
that had to be disappointing for many on that day. In his leaving, Jesus refused to accept the kingly position the crowd had offered to him in their cheers. Secondly, it it seems as a missed opportunity here, doesn't it? That amidst the popularity and the buzz that is happening, that Jesus doesn't make a presentation to the masses. That he doesn't ask people to believe in him to make a personal decision to follow the Savior and lead them in a prayer. Church leaders everywhere would kill for a moment like this, to have this sort of buzz and crowd and opportunity and popularity, yet in the end, no one knew leaves the city with Jesus. The 12 that came in with him are the 12 that leave with him. And we were reminded that Christ has never loved a crowd. In fact, he does all that he can, it seems, to avoid it. He loves the people in them, but he does not love the crowd because Jesus isn't after crowds. He's after disciples. Crowds will always follow what is popular and trendy, but disciples are the ones who consider the cost and still follow Jesus. And so on today, on Palm Sunday, like we revere a king who through his own authority and power and will began the journey to his death, who included his people to join him in his work, who rode on a donkey inside a crowd that thirsted for an uprising as a king that came in peace to a city without it. And he arrives not at a fortress or an outpost of those in the crowd that, that they hated, but at the temple the heart of religious life in that day, and he takes an account and he leaves without much fanfare. That is something to feast over today. That is something to celebrate today. And as we do, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Am I a part of the crowd? Or am I one of the twelve? Does Jesus only matter to me when it seems like he's aligned with my purposes? Or am I committed to aligning myself with Jesus, no matter the cost? Do I follow him when it's popular? Or do I follow him even when it's costly? What if I don't get what I want? What if he doesn't do what I want? Would I still leave the city with him, or would I stay with the crowd? On the night before his death, three days after his arrival, Christ shares a meal with his disciples for the Passover. The Passover celebrates God literally passing a plague over the Israelites in Egypt by blood being smeared on their door frames. And on that night, Jesus would point us towards the work of another lamb, him, and his sacrifice, and what his blood would do. On the very next day, he would be killed. But we know, we know that he did not stay dead, that he rose again, and we will celebrate that with joy in our hearts on Sunday. And it is because of the risen Christ that we can join here together as a community of broken but hopeful believers who seek to love what he loved, to live what he taught, and strive to be his good and faithful servants in our time and place. So today we partake in a similar meal, 
that we call communion, where we remember Jesus and his promises and the price that he paid for us and what he said and what he did. On the night before his death, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, take and eat whatever you do. Whenever you do this, remember me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and poured out saying, this is the new covenant, remember me. Today we do remember him. And so if you're a believer in here and you have a faith in Christ and you are a part of his family, we remember his life of love, his friendships, his teaching, his dying, and his raising to life again. And sharing this meal together, we proclaim our shared faith in our proclamation is this, that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ has come again. And so if you have your communion cups, you can take out the bread. This is the body of Christ, the bread of life. Let us take it together. The juice symbolizes the lifeblood of Christ, the cup of blessing. Let us partake together. These are the gifts of God for his people. And we are thankful for these gifts. And we are thankful for the Prince of Peace who arrives today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today. And we gather around this meal and around this table as we remember a table that you sat a long time ago, around a long time ago. In grateful fellowship, Father, we gather to share in the blessing of this meal. And among us are some who have arrived anxious, some who are lonely, Father, some who suffer pain and sorrow. And Lord, will you just, as a community of believers, will you allow us in our joys to find grace to enter the sorrows of others? And among us today are some who arrive rejoicing, hearts made light by your arrival, with good health and glad anticipation. And may we, in our sorrows, find grace to embrace the joys of others. And may we all be thankful for your grace and provision, for your forgiveness and peace. May it echo amongst the walls of our hearts. We love you, Christ. And we pray this through your beautiful name. Amen.